couple of weeks ago, Ian preached out of uh, 1 and 2 Peter. And uh, there was a text that just caught my mind in the prayer meeting, but even as he preached. And so won't you, if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. So 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him. And so very briefly, we understand that divine power through what it's saying here, comes through the knowledge of Him, which helps us live out a godly life. Then it goes on to say, who called us by His own glory and goodness. So here's an interesting thing, is through His own glory and goodness, Mark, won't you just, I don't know what's happening. What happens is, is if we understand that divine power comes through the knowledge of Him, and that He's given that with a, from a platform of His glory and of His goodness. The interesting thing that I found in this is that why would He describe an attribute within the context of an overarching description of His attributes? In other words, what is God's glory? Well, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 33, where we see Moses say, God, and he calls out to God, he says, show me your glory. And if you go back there, and I'm not going to read the scripture, but if you go back there, what happens is, is God says, well, I will come and I will declare my name over you and I will show you my goodness. Again, he says that he separates, in a sense, all of his attributes, but he seems to specify and have a specific reference to his goodness, which I'm going to get to in a moment why that is so significant. But he does that for us in the context of this, showing that the basis for all of this, when he goes through these, he says, he has given us his great and precious promises so that we can participate in His divine nature. So what happens is these great and valuable promises. So in other words, we can have an understanding of who God is, but until we understand the fact that His nature is of goodness towards us, and we can go through it. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. He's faithful. He is all loving. I can go through all of those. But as His nature rises within us, we start to see what He has promised for us. Without that foundation... Without that knowledge, we do not have divine power, and we, do, we are unable to partake in His divine nature. The word knowledge in this particular instance is a word epinosis. And we have some Greek people here that can tell you what that means. Gnosis means knowledge, and it's an, an, a word that English has incorporated in terms of its vocab. Now, epi is a preposition which tells you epi means above, it means on top of. And so it means that it's the knowledge that is above. It's the knowledge that is on top of. It all comes from a word called ginosko, which means I know, I understand, I have insight. But the word ginosko is used in the context of deep, intimate knowledge. In Matthew 1.25, it says there that Joseph did not know, did not ginosko Mary until she had had Jesus. In other words, Joseph did not have sexual relationships with Mary until Jesus was born. So it talks about the fact that that knowing is a deep, intimate, not just, oh, okay, I know of, but a deep, intimate understanding and insight and knowledge of who God is. And so if we understand what God is trying to tell us here, is that if we look at this picture, is the fact that when we understand God's glory, His nature, His attributes, His goodness overall towards us, He communicates His goodness and His good and great and valuable and costly promises to us, we have a knowledge of who He is, so therefore we can operate out of a divine power that He has given us, 
and we can partake in his divine nature. It's amazing. And you go, okay, Gary, that's great. I mean, I understand that, um, but what, for what purpose? I'm glad you asked that question. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3 says, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power. To what? To demolish strongholds. Okay, well, what are those strongholds? Well, those strongholds are arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against what? The knowledge of God. So we are to take captive every thought and bring it into obedience to Christ. So let's have a look at all the words that are up there or that are in that text. Divine power is essentially God's ability. Demolish is this tearing down. It's this casting. It's not just kind of like, oh, you know, I'm just going to pull this thing down and put it down nasty. It's a, it's a casting down. It's a violent act to demolish. Strongholds are these prisons, these fortresses that are developed, which already I've said, those strongholds are arguments. They are thoughts. They are theories. They are imaginations. They are these um, reasonings that we come up with. What are pretensions? They are prideful and lofty opinions that we have that set themselves up against the understanding, the recognition, and the intimacy of God. And we need to take captive and take prisoner those things. Make sense? So if strongholds are these arguments, these reasonings, these lofty opinions and pretensions that set themselves up against God, what I've done is I've written what I believe what I've just over these two texts. If I summarize them, I would summarize them like this. You have, we have, God's ability which comes through an intimate knowledge of him to tear down fortresses and prisons that are built through our thinking, our reasoning, our imaginations, and our pride and proud and lofty opinions that are contrary to the nature of God to live out the life that we were destined to live. The problem is, is when we dwell on false belief systems that the enemy would come and put into our minds and that we would begin to think on, that we would begin to dwell on, it actually sets us up for failure. Because if we need divine power through the knowledge of God and our knowledge is not correct, then how can we walk out what God has called us to and what, what can we do in terms of our destiny? We cannot because we've rendered ourselves impotent and redundant. That's why, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I shared out of Romans 8, and it says there that the mindset on the flesh is death, and we cannot, we are unable to obey or to follow what God has taught us to. So now, okay, great. We're in this place. We've understood 2 Peter chapter 1. We've understood the why of what is going on in terms of the demolishment of these strongholds, these arguments and pretensions. Let's go and look at a moment when Jesus deals with his disciples. And let's learn from what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And let's learn from his disciples because we are just like them and we are so doff that we should struggle to breathe. Mark chapter 8, please. Mark chapter 8 and verse 11. Now before I start reading the scripture, I want to give a context to the scripture. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. This is the second time that he has fed thousands of people. The first time he fed 5,000 with five loaves of fish, five loaves of bread and two fishes. So he's done this once. He's not doing this again. He's just finished doing this. That is the context. We have the Pharisees, verse 11, came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign 
from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat and he went to the other side. But he's just shown them a sign. Here the Pharisees, blinded by what they don't see, and they're saying, please show us a sign to prove who you are and what you are telling us. And he says, I will not show you a sign. But actually, he's already shown them a sign. Shown them a sign. Shown Shah. Shisha on the seashore. Verse 14 says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Who was the wali that didn't bring the seven baskets that were left over? Can you imagine how he got a drubbing in the boat? And all they've got is this. I mean, they've just had a great meal. They're probably full, but they know they're going to be hungry soon. And they've got one loaf of bread. Except for the one loaf that they had. Verse 15 says, Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Why would he say that in that moment? Sorry, is that noise in my head bothering you? <laughs> Did you see the light bulb? Come on. <laughs> see, the Pharisees were the religious fanatics who had drummed Jesus down into a place where there was no relationship with God. It was all about rules and procedures, and God was, in a sense, far off, and there was no intimacy with him. They might have known really well about God, but they did not know him. They did not epinosis him. They didn't have insight. They didn't have understanding. They didn't know him. What about the Herodians? Well, the Herodians were the dynasty at the time who were in power. They were like the, um, the king and queen of the time. And so what would happen is that now the Roman imperialism comes on board and they go, oh, we're going to lose traction here. We're going to lose our position. So what do we do is we know we call to be the kings of this, uh, this Jewish nation and to lead them into what God has for us. But we're losing power, so let's just cuddle up with the Roman imperialism. And so what they do is they land up playing the game to their best advantage and not living out the truth that God had called them to. That's the yeast that can come into our lives. Verse 16 says, they discussed this with one another. And you're going to notice in a moment, that word discussed is the same word that's used for arguments up in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. They reasoned. They imagined. They theorized. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And you can imagine Jesus going, oh my word. Okay. Guys. Fed 5,000 with five loaves. Fed 4,000 with seven loaves. And you'll know, he's going to say it now. He goes through it, and he says to them, I'm going to rush there quickly, go to the end. He says, when I broke five loaves, how many, pieces, how many baskets were left over? They say 12. He says, and I've just done it with 4,000 people. How many baskets? Seven. And he goes, do you still not understand? Because he asks them, why are you talking about this? Do you still not understand? That word talking is the same word. Why are you reasoning? Why are you theorizing? Why are you imagining all of this kind of stuff? When I've just shown you this, do you not have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Do you not remember? And then just before that, he says, are your hearts hardened? So he asks him those questions. I mean, guys, please help me understand. I've taken five loaves and I've fed 5,000. I've taken seven loaves and I've fed 7,000. Now you've got one loaf of bread and you're asking whether or not that's going to feed about 13 of us. 
That's what's happening. But we do that every single day of our lives, don't we? And I'm going to show you. Because why? Because the disciples responded out of fear. Whatever we pursue, whatever we follow, whatever we look after, whatever we are gazing upon, that is what we will become. If you pursue fear, that will happen. If you pursue love, you're going to be filled of love. And the fact is, as you've heard this from the pulpit a few times, we were created to love and not to fear. But because of the fall, what's happened is fear has come into us, and so now we become a people who get distorted by the false belief systems in our head. Those strongholds come, we begin to fear, and we live out our lives like that. And what happens is we do not have the faith to walk out our lives because we always are questioning the goodness of God towards us. So what he's saying is, is I provided for you. <laughs> I provided for you. Now you're questioning whether I'm going to provide for you. See, the problem is, is that Moses understood and the, the, that God had declared the goodness to him. And the thing about fear is it's a false evidence assumed real. Found this out when we went to one of the business mentoring meetings. The fact is, is if we have false evidences that we assume real and we walk those things out, then what happens is, is we land up with this. Where fear imprisons, paralyzes, disheartens, sickens, and makes us useless. Whereas faith believes in the goodness of God and it, it liberates and empowers, encourages, heals, and makes us serviceable to, and good towards others. Warren just spoke about a young man where his faith towards God has made him serviceable by serving others now, rather than trying to do the Pharisaical or the Herodian kind of deal and work it to his best advantage. And so we land up in this place where Jesus asks us two questions, because the fact is, is that where there's no God, we will know fear. But when we know, when we epinosis God, fear will dissipate. The two questions Jesus asks is, why are you reasoning? Why are you theorizing? Why are you imagining? Why are you talking about those things that you don't have? And secondly, why is your heart hard? So let's look at those two things, and then I'll be done. So Jesus challenges their thinking, and he says, okay, guys, the fact is, because you believe in this false, this, this false belief system, let's unpack this for all of us, practically. I'm sure many of you have been in a place where you needed God's provision. Okay, all the time. But there are times that provision comes and we, whether it's financial, whatever it might be, God provides. Do you think, and in some cases, there are miraculous provisions? I don't know about you, but I've had miraculous provisions from God. So I'm in this moment, and I'm going, God, gee, how are we going to do this? God provides. Boom. Okay, now, is that just a temporary intervention of God? Or is that him displaying his nature to me? I think we think it's a temporary intervention of God. Ach, my boy, let me help you out. No, God's saying, this is who I am, Gary. Now what happens a little bit down the road, I'm now probably in a worse position. Because that was bad. But now this is really bad because now it's impossible. Like maybe I could have got out of that one, but this one I can't get out of. I've only got one loaf of bread. How am I going to feed these guys now? And God says... Hold on a second. I've displayed my nature to you. Do you not believe now? And the problem is, is often the, the, the time delay between here and here and the absence of, in a sense, God's seemingly lack of intervention or interest in my life, we start to question the nature of God. God, why have you done this? God, why are you not providing? God, why are you not doing this? But he's already shown you that he does that. We are just like the disciples. And we follow exactly what they've done. 
You see, the thing is, is I think the older we get in God, the more mature we get in God, God's less interested about our thoughts, and he's more interested in the process of our thoughts. He's more interested in, okay, the fact that I've done all of this for you, why would you reason, why would you theorize that I am not like that? Why would you start to question my goodness towards you? Even though, yes, circumstantially that is, but I have shown you that I am a God of provision. I am a God who loves you. I fed 5,000. I fed 4,000. Do you not think I can feed the 13 of you right now? Where are you in your context of your life right now? God has worked miraculous things in your life on different bases. And maybe this is just this, the delay. Are you questioning his goodness towards you? Or are you, and are you allowing the false belief systems of who God is to come in and to smack what God is doing in your lives? You see, the problem is we can be like the Israelites. Psalm 107 says this, He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The biggest failure for Israel was they only knew his acts. They didn't know his ways. Do you know, do you just know of God and his acts? Or do you know his ways? Moses understood that. You see, every single one of us are like Adam and Eve. And I wonder if I could do something here. I want to break an iPad. I'll break a flip file. I want to just try and depict this. I don't know whose stuff this is. Apologies. We'll give you an extra 30 seconds to set up. Okay, every single moment of our lives, we are faced with two decisions. They are throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 28 says, I said before you, death and life, choose. But choose life for goodness sake. Okay, Adam and Eve, right in the beginning, God said, okay, I, I want you to love me. Not I want you to love me. I've made you, I want to pour out my love to you, but I, I'm allowing you to choose to love me. I'm not going to make you love me. Go and tell somebody, you better love me. So in this case, what's happening is, is he's saying, here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat of that. Here is the tree of life. Now we can think about this in two different ways. We think God is going to test us in this. He's going to go, okay, Gary, I've given you this choice. Let me see what you do. That's not the heart of God. Because the heart of God tells me in Hebrews that it is impossible without faith to please God. And he goes on to say, and, but he is one who is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what God's doing is he's giving us choice to say, he has death, he has life. He has the, knowledge of tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here is the tree of life. I am asking you to choose, but I'm asking you to choose because I'm giving you an opportunity to reward you. When we start to believe in false belief systems, what we do is we undermine and we make it redundant or we make it impossible for God to reward us. Because we believe, as Adam and Eve did, and this is a Steve Whitford thing, so I'm giving him credit, is at our life group when I shared this, I thought this was profound, is that what happens is, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one little no. That's all it is. It's this little no. Don't eat of that. You're going to die. Eat of this. But not only this, the rest of this, 
is yours. The big yes. You've got all this, just not this. But this is so that I can know that you are choosing to love me and be my son and daughter. And so that I can reward you. So every step of the day, every step of the way, in every day, we have this choice between these two things. And God is giving us opportunity to reward us, not to punish us. Because it says in James that God does not tempt us. And God does not put us to the test. But God has given us opportunity. Why? To reward us. Am I making myself clear? Not to punish us. So in this context, we have this big yes. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that every spiritual blessing is available to us. Every. Not, ugh, Gary, you got two. Grant, you got five. Lee, you got ten. No, every spiritual blessing is available to us. We have the big yes. The little no is this. So what happens? Now Jesus says to them, okay, you reason with all of this. You're trying to make it out like I'm not going to provide for you. You've now believed that I'm not going to provide for you. You've created within yourself a fortress, a stronghold of a false belief system that now Satan is operating. He has come to dwell and he has now made home there. He is squatting in your mind. And so when there is this choice now and you go, all right, should I, um, should I put the wrong thing on my tax return? Okay, God, I know you life. Uh, okay, God, I can't see that you're going to provide for me. Death. You know, somebody said to me this week, it was a, it was a profound moment, that, you know, David went around doing his thing, and he was a man just like any one of us. Okay, ladies, not like you, but person. And uh, he went and slept with Bathsheba. She fell pregnant, and then he killed her husband so that he wouldn't find out about it. Set him to the front lines. Now, Nathan the prophet only comes to him about a year later because the baby's about to be born or has just been born. And um, you wonder, why did it take so long for God to speak to David? Nine months. At least. I mean, because the baby's now born. Do you think he never sinned over those nine months? Have any of you not sinned this week? Okay, so David was a man just like us. We see through the book of Psalms. The question I have is, what was the difference between, can I say, his daily sinful life?